Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm your Dean Osband, here with my friend Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Our dad today, Masachet Sukkah, Daf Chet, page 8. So this Daf is basically, or I should say, I'm an Aleph at least, is a geometry lesson. And as much as we've talked about before that, you know, some of the uh, visual challenges, or let's say challenges that there are to learning about structures and measurements when it's all written word, this staff was trying to teach us math in all written word. And I also think this raises a different challenge, which is in the context of Dafyomi, if we were learning this staff to eat in a very detailed manner, we probably would have sat with Amadalik and written out all the different types of structures of the circumferences and the diameters and measured out all the different uh, measurements that the Gemara is talking about. Unfortunately, because it is Dafyomi, we don't necessarily have the opportunity to do so. So I think I just sort of wanted to acknowledge, uh, you know, that that is a little bit of what's going on here. Um, and this was a hard daf, at least for me. If we have any co-learners out there who are mathematicians or awesome at math, please, please, please email us or comment on our Facebook page. How did you comprehend this first daf? But essentially what this daf is talking about is the case of the round sukkah. And it's starting with this premise of Rabbi Yochanan, who says that if you have to have a round sukkah, unlike the square sukkah, which has a minimum of four by four amot, the round sukkah needs to have 24 amot um, inside of it. And there's a whole discussion about how do they get to that? What is the reason for that? Um, and again, I, I don't even feel you know comfortable almost like uh, going through it. But in other words, sorry, it, it's, it's basically that the round sukkah it has to have a circumference that's large enough to contain 24 people. That's really basically the idea. And so since, you know, which so first, no, this is a really large sukkah. It's a huge 25 sukkah. people is right. large. It's a huge sukkah. So if we say that each person can be in, is in a space of an amma, basically. So 24 people must equal 24 amot. And then what we basically see is a discussion on this page of, the, you know, understanding the relationship between circumference and diameter, right? And that that relationship is essentially uh, three to one. But if you take the three to one, then the Gemara wants to know, well, then why can't you do what Rebbe said, which was the four by four sukkah? So then it should only be 12 amot and not 24. And so they essentially sort of try to understand you know, how does, how does, how does Rabbi Yochanan get to this opinion of 24 people, which must be 24 amot, and what is it exactly that you are measuring? Is it a measurement of a square inside a circle? Is it the measurement of a circle inside a square? And that, and that's, you know, essentially sort of, that's my, your Dana's cliff notes to the DAF. I'm not sure if I did it <laughs> totally and completely well, but I will just focus on uh, you know, something, you know, and then they even, uh, uh, you know, even if, if the premise about each person taking an ama was that even correct? It's a very interesting daft. And again, I, I feel bad because I don't feel like I understood it well enough because of the pace of daft yomi. Um, but then the Gemara gets into uh, this interesting story about the Rabbanam de Kesari, the sages of Kesari. And so the Gemara basically has, Kame habiluhu tamane sari, so they're asking, how many amot are there in the circumference of an inner circle formed by a circle of 24 people? And they basically say that there are 18 amot, right? So if we're going to use this principle of 
three amot of circumference is one ama in diameter, right? So you, if you have the diameter of a circle where the outer circumference is 24 people, right? That essentially becomes, uh, that becomes eight amot. Um, and so therefore they want to figure out and calculate what the circumference of this inner circle is. Now, I wasn't completely sure that I understood why are you talking about an inner circle and an outer circle? But I think what they mean by this is, is that like, if you take a structure, right, you can measure the circumference from outside of the structure, or you can measure the circumference from inside the structure. And so essentially using this three to one principle, right, a circle with a diameter of six amot will have a circumference of 18 amot, right? But if you, but if the circumference is 17 minus one fifth, which is what the Gemara is talking about here, that's sort of like basically close enough. And so the Gemara basically says, this is where he's not precise. Um, and when he's not precise, he is stringent. So therefore that's how we get to 18. So in other words, after doing all of this math, right? This 18 on moat that they sort of settle on in the end, not the 24, but the 18, it has to do with sort of essentially rounding up. And then finally, we have this Rabbanan to Kesari, right? The Imri la Dine to Kesari. So there were these sages of Kesaria, and some say that it was the judges of Kesaria, and they explained this differently. Imri, Igula Dinafig Migu, Rivuya, Rava. And they basically say that the circumference of a circle inside of a square is going to be a quarter less than the perimeter of a square. Rivuya Dinafig Migu, Igula, Braga, Buloha. While the perimeter of a square circumcised by a circle, right? So in other words, our first case is a circle inside of a square. Now we're talking about a square where there's a circle inside, right? Is going to be smaller than the circumference of the circle, basically by, um, sorry, the first case is, right, this, right where you have a square that has a, a circle around it, right? That circumference of that circle is going to be uh, is going to be half. I don't think I said that correctly. I think I messed that up. Sorry. Let me say that again. <laughs> We're talking about a perimeter of a square that's circumscribed by a circle, right? So that's going to be smaller. It's smaller than the circumference of that circle by half. So in other words, if you add half the perimeter of the square to the perimeter of the square that is going to equal the circumference of the circumcising circle. And that is actually going to get you to 24. So if you have a circle with a circumference of 24 amot, right? And that circumscribes, in other words, that's around a square that has a perimeter of six, would have a perimeter of 16 amot, according to this opinion of Rabbi Yochanan. And then the Gemara basically says here at the end, right? This is not the case because we see that the circumference in the cir 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 circumscribing circle is not that much. In other words, what we're really talking about is one that is 18. What I found now, I don't think I explained this well at all, because again, I'm trying to explain math using my voice, which is very hard to do. But well, I, I want to, I just want to add something else, Yeah, which is that we're talking about circumferences, right? Right. And diameters and the, those ratios depend on a number that was not in fashion yet, namely pi. Right, meaning the whole thing of a circumference, right? The 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 need for 
pi to be part of the number pi, right? 3.14 and it goes on forever, right? The number that it, it becomes part of the equation of how do you determine the circumference of a circle and they're, they in the Gemara are estimating. And so when you're talking about it, your Dana, and you're estimating because the Gemara is estimating, right? It kind of like runs us into a brick wall because we need pi. Now I did some quick Googling and pi was already, you know, they, they, the mathematicians of the era were looking for pi. They didn't actually find it exactly, but they knew 3 point something, 3.1 something, 3.18, 3.125, whatever. There was a number of different, they didn't, maybe they didn't know yet that it was an irrational number. I'm not sure. But it was part of the, the mathematical endeavor of Babylonia and so on, all until, you know, until the Europeans kind of, I don't know, I read something that said that they figured it out in India in the years 400, to 500 something like that so to me this is part of why they're talking around it pardon me that's a really bad pun i didn't mean it right they're talking around it and because they don't have the precise vocabulary for it because they didn't have the precise number for it yet whereas if you go to any 10th grade geometry class you learn about pi right but what i'm struck by with this you know rabbananda kesari is basically how like they understood geometry in the way that they understood geometry and that also this was under the purview right of Rabbanan de Kesari in other words you could turn to rabbis to understand these types of concepts and that they were teachers of this so yes, even though I may not 100%. Totally, so even though I may not totally understand the math of what's going on here and I certainly don't have the ability to explain well what's going on here verbally in the podcast my two take on points are, well, the first one that I am mentioned, right? How does this relate to their concept of understanding pi? And they're working off of a different geometric um, understanding. But the second is, is that they really wanted to understand geometry and that it was important and to see where geometry sort of fits in to understanding halacha and that place, like, in other words, you had to understand science in order to understand Rabbi Yochanan's position. And that's fascinating to me. Right. That was one of my takeaways also, this idea that, you know, we talk about everything being in Torah, and here it is. You know, like, you, if you don't understand geometry well, it becomes very difficult to understand this aspect of halacha, right? Like, it's, that's what it is. Um, and not just if you're rushing through the daf, meaning, obviously, I'm talking about if you sit down and, and delve in. <laughs> okay, excuse me. So now Anne's going to get to the fun, the only really comprehensible <laughs> part of the DAP. And I will be you honest, know what? we did discuss who got to present this one. I was nice today and told Anne. I, I yes, I'm going to, I need to thank you for taking the math. <laughs> yes. I, I like math. I just think it's hard to talk about it it's so hard in words. Okay. Now, I'm not actually sure that this is so much more comprehensible, but what we have on Amabet is a whole bunch of mnemonics. Now, we know that the Gemara uses mnemonics to kind of for the Tanaya, meaning the the people who are remembering large large chunks of text, um, Tanaim and I guess Amoraim who are remembering, um, you know, lists of things. So they would use mnemonics the same way anybody who's I don't know studying biology, you know, you run you run things off by having an acronym that kind of thing. So we have here uh, halfway through the Ahmad, Tanara Banan. It says Gimel Nun Bet Chafsofit. And it's got a chup trick, you know, the double apostrophe that makes it clear that this is an acronym. And it, but the acronym is not a word. It simply is the letters, which are, in fact, the mnemonic. So the gimel, so it says sukkat 
going, so all of this is about different kinds of Sukkot. So one is Sukkot, Sukkot Goyim, that's the Gimel. Sukkot Nashim, that's the Nun. Sukkot Behema, right? The idea that there could be a booth for domesticated animals, that's the Behema. Gimel Nun Bet Chafsofit. Sukkot Kutim, the Kutim here are the Samaritans, right? Who are largely excluded from, let's call it rabbinic Judaism, but they apparently, you know, they're part of the group here that can have, you know, any one of these number of the different um, booths. Um, okay, now, so the Gemara says, it doesn't matter whose booth it is, if it's a, if it's a halachic booth, it's a halachic booth, right? As long as it's got its schach in the proper way, then none of them is going to be, not one of these sukkot is going to be disqualified based on who made it, who built it, or, or for why they might have put it together. Once you've got a sukkah, it's a sukkah, as long as it stands for the parameters of sukkah. Now, this calls, you know, reminds us, I think, of the discussion of whether mitzvot tzrichot kavana or not, right? What is the mitzvah of sukkah? So you may need to have in mind to be yotze, the mitzvah of sukkah, if you're sitting in the sukkah. But the building of the sukkah isn't the mitzvah. The sitting in the sukkah and eating, dwelling in the sukkah is the mitzvah. So we don't care who built it, as long as it's been built in a way that is halachically a kosher sukkah. So that's one mnemonic. Gimel nun bet chaf. And now you can remember goyim nashim behema and kutim. It doesn't mean that the behemoth built the sukkah. It means that perhaps there's a booth that was built for them for a stall or whatever. Okay, so now the Gemara wants to know, my kihil chata. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that it's kihil chata? Amar of chista v'husha asa'a letzel sukkah. Says you have to establish that sukkah to be the kind of thing, the kind of structure that will provide the shade that a sukkah has specifically from schach. Otherwise, what you have there is a lean-to, a tipi, meaning temporary or potentially temporary structures that would not count as a sukkah also. You need to have these this criterion. So then the Gemara says, all right, so what are we talking about when we say that it has to have this kind of schach? Could it be any kind of booth? What, what does this really mean? What does it come to include? So the Gemara answers, sukkah, and now we've got another mnemonic, reish kut. Kuf bet shin lituye. What are these? What are these sukkot that are going to be included? That was a question. What is it going to include? These ones. The Rabbanan sukkat ravkash. No rakvash. Sorry. Sukkat roim the sukkah of a uh, of a uh, shepherds. Sukkat kayatzim the booth of kayatzim seems to be people who, the the profession of drying figs. Sukkat Borganim. Borganim are the guards in the fields. They came up once before, I think, in Erevin. Sukkat Shomrei Perot, the people who would guard the produce, the fruits. And So again, it doesn't matter who built it or why, as long as, at the end of the day, it is it has a proper kind of sukkah, the proper kind of schach, pardon me, as long as it is done, or I've seen this translated as in as a standard, right? But that's kind of what lahalacha means here, right? It has to be the standard of what makes it into a sukkah. So then, of course, the Gemara is going to ask the same question again. My keel chata. What is this question? Meaning, what does it mean? Say keel chata. What's the standard? 
on Rav Chista, Vahusha Asa'a, Betzel Sukkah. So Rav Chista gives the same answer again, right? It's a different version, fundamentally. We've got the one mnemonic of the um, Ganbach, and then the second mnemonic of Rakabash, and it's a different people. Different. One is about, I guess, status or identity, and the other is really professions. Who's using these booths? Who's making these booths? And then the Gemara goes on to explain exactly what we what we're doing with these um, with these double mnemonics. Hi Tana Diganbach, meaning the Tana who taught these this first mnemonic list of Goyim Nashim Behemot and Kuti Alima Le Ganbach. Mishum dekvi. We want to use that particular mnemonic because this is the shita, this is the approach that says maybe these are permanent structures. These are going to be similar to permanent structures. So the builders of these particular structures are not obligated in the mitzvah. So then what happens? I mean, what, what happens if they have built it? Vakatana mikol makom, when the, when the Rav Chista answers, in any case, but the second set of structures mean, again, the shepherds and the fig dryers and the guards in the field and the guards of the fruits, all of those are very obviously temporary structures. Meaning picture the shepherd out in the field who, who sets himself up a little lean-to so that he can have some shade. That is really different than somebody who's building some kind, any kind of structure Um for let's say for an animal pen at a you know back at home, not out in the field. So this this is exactly you know what we were talking about the other day that we can perhaps we can use this as a prism or a lens to see how often are we talking about sukkah sukkot as a matter of being akin to a permanent structure, and when do we see them as being akin to a temporary structure? And that's exactly this. Meaning some of these the first mnemonic is about. What happens if a sukkah is built more to be more sturdy? I don't want to say sturdy, more to be more lasting as compared to the second set, which they're presenting them to be obviously not permanent structures. And yet, either way, all of them, right, will fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah. And then, Vahaitana de Ravkash, Alemale Ravkash, de Bnei well, maybe the reason that we're going to say that all of those sukkot, of the of the shepherd and the fig dryers and the guards and the fields and the guards of the fruit, all of those people are obligated in the midst of sukkah. So maybe we're going to say that they're all going to be included, but the other set, right, the people who are not obligated in sukkah, namely goyim and nashim and behemot and kutim, maybe we're going to exclude them. So when it says mikol makom ganbach to love b'nech even if the person who built the sukkah is not obligated in the mitzvah of sukkah, the sukkah is still a kosher sukkah as long as it is, in fact, a kosher sukkah. The hands that built it need not have an obligation to sit in the sukkah for somebody else to come sit in the sukkah and it's considered kosher by whoever made it. So the two mnemonics here really work together to give us a much fuller picture of how far this, um, the construction of sukkah can go, right? Namely, whether it's going to be more temporary or more permanent, whether it's going to be built by those who are obligated in the mitzvah or those who are not obligated in the mitzvah, as long as the thing that is built, the structure, is physically a sukkah, halachically a sukkah, then you are able to fulfill your mitzvah in it.
So uh, this, I wonder if this really was practical. I know very often we talk about like boundary pushing, but I think actually there were a lot of Sukkot around. And I think this was a practical question. People had Sukkot on their property and they wanted to know if you could use it or not. And that's what these two prices are essentially explaining, which also I think we've seen homes that have been built. They're more popular in Israel, you know, sort of with some type of structure that you can use very easily for a sukkah itself. So I think looking at the stuff, we see sort of this idea that you didn't have to like build the sukkah special. You could use a pre-existing structure, I think has always been around since, you know, the idea of, sukkah, of building a sukkah has been around. It also means that you can get anybody who's willing to help you build your sukkah to help you build your sukkah. You don't have to worry about their personal obligation. Right, exactly. And I, you know, I think that's, it's interesting to see that there's sort of, at least in that first price, uh, that there's sort of a question about, you know, can you use a sukkah? That's for people who are not obligated in sukkah. Um, and I think that's also teasing out something fundamental about structures. Like, yes, a structure can have a purpose or a meaning, but at the end of the day, it's just a structure. So, you know, what does that mean about it? And I think it obviously comes to the logical conclusion, which is, no, a sukkah is just a sukkah. Doesn't, you know, the original... Uh, purpose of why it was built is not important, especially if it was not for somebody who might not be chayev in sukkah. Right. But once you're going to do it, once you're going to dwell in it or sit in it to eat in it for the purpose of the mitzvah, then you have to have it in mind to do so. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Bring us reviews on our major podcast. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.